The bliss of the abyss, it's here now. Welcome back to the bliss of the abyss, finding freedom in the unexplored and the unexpected. You may be able to hear that my voice is a little bit hoarse. I wonder if that's got to do with yelling about football at any point, or if that's just normal. Moving swiftly on from the crushing disappointment that was Euro 2020, I have a fantastic episode for you bliss heads out there this week. Apparently, they're called bliss heads now, Rob. But thank you very much, Ruskin. I didn't know. My pleasure. This week we have Dr. Raven Bowen. Dr. Raven Bowen is the CEO of National Ugly Mugs, a UK-wide charity aimed to end violence against sex workers. Her involvement in community development with sex workers spans almost three decades in Canada and the UK. Her book, Work, Money and Duality, Trading Sex as a Side Hustle, is based on her PhD research about the lives of people who live dual lives by working in sex industries alongside mainstream or square jobs. This was an absolutely fantastic and very interesting and enlightening conversation about this world that I didn't know that much about, but that is growing and uh, and ever-present in an era of austerity and internet entrepreneurs, quite frankly, and a changing landscape of legislation that sometimes criminalizes and sometimes seeks to decriminalize these behaviors that there really is no legislating in one way or another, other than with safety, I think, as a paramount. Anyway, you will hear my rather uneducated Um, but from the heart opinions and Dr. Bowen's very educated and also from the heart opinions as well as the head in this episode. Um, It was a fantastic chat and I really, really recommend that you check out Dr. Bowen's work and uh, there's a special discount code for my listeners um, for the book so I will send that out in the newsletter and um, without any further ado, I bring to you on the bliss of the abyss, Dr. Raven Bowen. Okay, well, um, Dr. Raven Bowen, welcome to The Bliss of the Abyss. Hi, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, no, thank you for having me. It's it's Canada Day, it's 6am, but you told me that you're still on UK time, so perhaps you're going to be more awake than I would be at 6am, that's for sure. Yes, I'm alert. You're alert. Have you got anything planned for Canada Day? Um, No, actually, I'm working and then I think I'll melt into the couch because there's a heat wave going on here and, you know, chocolate melts. So I think I'll just like slide off on the couch. I'm I'm actually watching um, Better Call Saul. I'm I'm binge binging it. Uh, I never did finish that series. So that's what I'm. Yeah, I never did either. I was obsessed with Breaking Bad and then um, I let the book drop. And then it ended and you needed more. (laughs) Give me more. Yeah. I don't blame yeah. you. Um, so, I mean, I'll give you like an introduction at the beginning and stuff. But um, for people who are unaware, would you like to sort of introduce yourself and, and your your work? Your most recent book is called Work, Money and Duality, Trading Sex as a Side Hustle. Yes. So um, let's see. I've, I've done a lot of community organizing with sex workers, mostly in Canada. And then later on, around 2015, I started in the UK. So I was on the board of Scott Pep and did some work with uh, workers there was also doing my PhD alongside. So I started the PhD in Durham, ended it in York, um, and I was focusing on people who blend sex work and square work, which is what I'm calling duality. Um, Currently, I'm the CEO of National Ugly Mugs, which is a a UK charity that supports sex workers who, and people in adult industries who become victims of crime. Um, So the 
yeah, so it's, it's, I've, I've had multiple identities over the last mm. probably 30 years um, working on these issues. But yeah, I landed with uh, just focusing, I went back to academics mid-career because mm. there are just so many gaps in between what I know and see happening in the community and how people are innovating and what's in the literature or what turns out to be how um, policy or legislation is created. So there's mm. like so many missteps between lived experience and how that's manifesting and how we're responding to people and, engaged in sex. And, and legislating it or, or failing to yeah. properly, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so you spoke to how, how many people did you speak to for this book? There's there's a uh, there's, ton of quotes. It's really interesting. There's so much direct reportage of, of people's experience. It's some of them are very fascinating. It's like a window into a world a lot of us don't don't normally get. Absolutely. And because it was a PhD study, I contained it to 35, but mm -hmm. there were 25 in the UK sample and you know, some of those interviews were like five hours long, like it was very, very in depth. And it's a qualitative study. So I wanted the book to, to, like, have their voices come through really clearly, because you won't hear from these people, like, they're not going to be the people you see when you think about or talk to necessarily uh, sex workers. So I wanted to make a lot of space for uh, to bring understanding to why they do what they do, and how similar they are to all of the rest of us mm. um, and the way that they're strategizing and what underpins all of that. So yeah, I made a lot of room for them to speak in the book. Yeah. And um, we're definitely going to get into all of it. I've got tons of tons of things I'm interested to ask you about um, because really I, I, I uh, full disclosure, by the way, we met uh, through work. I voiced some characters uh in your book you sure did <laughs> um which was amazing uh fun experience and really interesting inhabiting those characters and so I'm kind of here as um and not particularly educated in the subject after except for having read your book and I'm sure my audience also um won't be particularly knowledgeable on this we all we all know our bits and pieces but so you're really here just to tell us all of these amazing things that you've learned from these people who live this this dual life what it's like for them um, and what their experiences are, the, tr the troubles uh, that they face, both, you know, internally and societally. Um, yeah. And yeah, there's a few bits of language that I'm still trying to get used to. So if I get it wrong, excuse me. But oh, no so square work is, as, as I understand it, like an office job or like regular fits in the box. Yeah, straight work. mainstream. And that is a terminology yeah. that is more North American. Um, I, right. you know, some people call it in the UK, they call it their civvy job. Civvy. Um, yeah. Some call it their normal job, which, you know, uh, right. or their straight job or, or things like that. But uh, yeah, it is that non-sexualized labor, but you know, so yeah. a lot of labor, square labor is sexualized anyway, but it, you know, the way that we're defining it is of like, um, delivering or providing services, delivering services, distinctly adult services that so one would be firmly in that broad adult industry and one is more, you know, I work at Greg's kind of thing. <laughs> so, is, no. Isn't that so interesting what you said about, you know, we call it like square, but like it's, it utilizes, it plays on our, our sexual desires and our unconscious and conscious desires, all marketing, it's always sex sells, etc. And you could have, you know, it just occurs to me, you could have like a square job working at like a big porn production house or something. Mm -hmm. And it's like yeah. that, but that's square work, according to like these imagined things. But like, 
they're not imagined yeah. then you walk and, into and a folks, bank and there are real life consequences aren't there totally and that's like i think what i've also learned i gotta plug in my computer sorry what i've also learned about this and how i've sort of um conceptualized sex work and square work future research i wouldn't necessarily do that um in the ways that i have because you know as you say there's lots of square occupations and square jobs in sex industries and and sexualized jobs in the square world or the mm. mainstream market mm. um but i would totally make the differentiation between the work that we hide and the work that we reveal mm. and so i think that that and i would want to do obviously a, a much much broader uh study but that would be some of the same ways that folks in the book are hiding their sex work or mm. managing their audiences and information is the same way we would if we were hiding that we were I don't know, delivering food on the side of our other job, like, you know, those, those same things. And it would, it would just pull this population of sex workers into the working class a bit more. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it was, I, there's a lot of fluidity between sex work and square work. And I, I'd like to explore that more, but I created that um the continuum and and just to to delve in specifically with how people are blending sex work and square work because it's there's a there's absence in the literature and absence mm. in our thinking and theorizing around sex work and work mm. um, about these folks who really challenge some of the narratives there yeah definitely i mean it, and you know you're, you're speaking for a a group of people that have been like some of the terms in the in the the one that stuck out to me was that they were that sex workers were described as lumpen proletariat mm. these just derogatory things they've been called throughout the ages and I remember when I was reading your book I remember actually a personal experience I had because I'm an actor by training right and uh I was in an, a, a cemetery in I think it's Nunhead by I can't remember a, a kind of a gorgeous cemetery and they had this okay. plaque sort of describing um where people were buried and you know there was, there was a royal area and it was like actors were not allowed to be buried on this ground until so and so and then and then they were only allowed a corner because they were seen as profane yeah. and in a weird and they they share that kind of thing with with people who've been sort of maligned i'm sure prostitutes weren't allowed to uh, be Women in theater actors were considered sex workers and prostitutes yeah exactly that's right. And uh, I think it's even like Moliere was not going to be buried. And like, this is like France's greatest playwright without the intervention of the king, because it's like, no, they're selling something, uh, which is a strange bias that human societies seem to develop. I mean, maybe you can explain that a bit to me. Why does it seem pervasive, do you think, across human societies that we do develop these biases against certain yeah, I think that there is a tendency to want to vilify a population, you know, that whole folk devil, like something goes wrong and it's, oh, it's the witches or it's the women mm. or it's the immigrants or it's a, like we want to point to a population or a tangible thing that we can blame for everything and to mm. scapegoat for everything. So I think throughout history, different populations have experienced the brunt of that, um, some more than others, you know, we'd focus on gay people and trans people and, you know, black people and 
trying to like, and you know, even the narrative during COVID, right? Some of the mm. narrative from some of the North Americans, he who shall not be named, you know, would just name the virus after a group of people. Like, so it, I think that there is that tendency to visit, vilify and other people so that we can hold them responsible for everything that happens wrong in our society. That, is it something sort of built into the the fabric of what being a human being is or is that do you think like a byproduct i think it's a choice yeah i think we choose it um because you know i'm mm. all about us um being responsible for the environments that we create and being responsible for the conditions that we create for each other mm. and it isn't something that can be you know like reified or externalized it's we do this to each other and we choose it like stigma we choose to stigmatize people it's true. It's an absolute choice. I mean, and even within the sex work world, the, there's a term I learned from your book, the, the I'm not going to pronounce it correct, horarchy. Horarchy, yeah. Mm -hmm. So like, even within the sex worker world, my point is people are stratifying themselves into I am worth more than you or of a different, and I can point the finger at you for X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And that thing about, I think I cited a theorist who talked about um, downward comparisons. Like people do that all the time when they feel they need to set themselves above mm. someone else for whatever reasons. And we tend to do that because we're quite competitive as human beings, I guess. But to, to, to elevate yourself and to point at somebody else as being lower or worse, that happens throughout our society. And we see that in sex work, but that's just reflecting what how we do that in mainstream anyway but it, some of the things yeah. that yeah and some of the things that kind of affect your status in sex industries include like police attention or how discreet you could be or mm. race class and gender or mm. you know all those kinds of things that that also we see that mirrored in mainstream workforces and you know who whose labor we pay more for and whose we don't and right. who we value and who we don't so for, for my listeners, can you just explain what, what, what a horarchy is? I still yeah. think I'm pronouncing it wrong. No, you are. Horarchy, that's fine. It's, you're not pronouncing it wrong. Absolutely not. And it is, it is the way the sex industry is stratified so that some people who are involved in some aspects in the industry that resemble dating, sugaring, cameras who don't have direct contact with clients mm. there's um divisions between on and off street workers there's divisions between locations of work how you work where you work um, so there's a lot of um things that influence your power and status who can command the most money who is able to market and benefit um the most from the industry or it's the same sort of standards of beauty that we have both in and outside of the industry. It's the same people who, you know, we celebrate as models and as our ideal body types, et cetera, are the same ones that will do very well in sex industries because client preferences is based on societal preferences, agents and other third parties will promote certain forms of beauty and mm. they'll, they'll promote what's most marketable, right? right. So the it, it's, it's, it's a mixture between having a hierarchy of human beings based on characteristics and traits, but also even if you're considered, like you would say at times that workers of color or migrants or people who are non-white or in this context, non 
UK would mm. occupy the bottom rungs, but then they are fetishized in ways that mm. sometimes they can command um, higher prices. Some people play on the stereotypes of each culture so that they can command more money if they're able to work in ways that yeah. um, they can appeal to higher paying clients and we right. they can avoid police and that kind of thing. So there's a complete stratification in the sex industry um, that mirrors uh, and is kind of grounded in what we value in mainstream society. And what we see in culture at large, it's, it's yeah. reflected in there. Wow. Yeah. And no surprise, right? Because, no. if, uh, you know, a, a person, a buyer, someone who's interested in purchasing sexual services is, is socialized in a culture that values green hair. So then when right. they're seeking company, they're going to look for someone who has green hair. Like it is that it's uh, it, it is that way that, you know, we we co-produce these mm. ranks, these, yeah. these stratification. We co-produce the the hierarchy. So, thinking about what people think in the general population about people who go and purchase these services, right? People who are buying sex off of people selling sex. I think maybe probably at large we view them as, uh, if not. Either, either lonely, that's definitely one of them, but also potentially like a bad actor, someone with malintent who wants to hurt somebody um, because the sex worker is often in a vulnerable situation, be it if it's a really fancy hotel, they've got a bit more protection, but some of them it's, it's a car. Um, and so we view the people who buy the sex, I think, sceptically because we've all read countless stories of these people being assaulted um, and, sometimes, yeah. and sometimes killed. And so, sorry, go on. Yeah, like I think we need to differentiate between people who buy sex and people who violate sex workers. Right. Right, because I run a charity that documents harms against yeah. people in adult industries and harms include all kinds of things like rape and assault and harassment and non-payment and condom re removal and all those things that are in violation of the contracting that sex workers do yeah. when they select and engage with a customer right. so customers we should understand right and they mm -hmm. are they're people who respect the terms and conditions of the engagement they have with industry folks they mm -hmm. pay mm -hmm. and then they go home right mm -hmm. that's great we mm -hmm. don't mind them if there's regulation that's needed around that fine let the adults in those various industries and engage face to face with customers decide what the rules of engagement will be. Let's support them in regulating that, right? But those who victimize and take advantage of sex workers because they have less access to police protection as you would, would for example, yeah. or they have, they're not necessarily seen as credible witnesses in court or they're not believed for what's happening to them. Those are the individuals that we need to pursue, but we need to pursue them and also protect sex workers and their right to work in industries and their right to leave industries, but they have a right to be safe no matter what. So yeah. that differentiation, but yeah, there is a lot of judgment for people who buy sex and who consume sexuality, which is really weird because we have commercialized sexuality in ways, in every way possible in our society. And when corporations are selling genes by showing, you know, people taking them off, or sometimes you don't even see the genes, like they're balled yeah. up in the corner and there's people... Yeah. on the bed like you don't see the products but you know corporations do it but when individuals decide 
I'm going to commercialize myself. I'm going to be a webcam or I'm going to do dance. I'm going to do full contact sex work. I'm going to do massage. When people decide to do that for themselves, then we have this additional special judgment of them. And do you think um, from all the people that you interviewed, was was the majority of people, um, you know, that they, they, when they first forayed into sex work as a side hustle, you know, that how many of it was sort of forced? If you see, I mean, how how many of them were? I am not going to make rent or or food or whatever this month. I'm going to lose my house unless I come up with, let's say, two hundred quid. And then all of them, all yeah. of them experienced like force through poverty, through necessity. They had something to repay. They were paying tuition. They were paying their kids tuition. They had a debt due. They, all of them had some degree of um, financial need because I focus on people who, because there are people who enter industries that are exploration or curiosity or, Mm. you know, more casual, but I focused on people who had an intent for their involvement um, and, and had this financial need that underpinned their reasons for doing the work because that that's the majority the, that's most the of the reason why anyone does any work let alone <laughs> sex industry work right and yeah I and think so yeah agree. yeah yeah okay yeah. so that's interesting yeah because I mean it makes you wonder sort of what percent like what percent and, and I don't know if it's even helpful to put a number on it it's just probably the way my brain works it's like what percent are just dipping their toe and just curious and also, what percent sort of does it become their main hustle? But then they need to keep the square work there for the veneer of respectability, right? For the societal acceptance and the, and the paper trail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like because so I'm seeing it, and this is based also on my practitioner experience that spans quite a few, quite a few, unfortunately, uh, about three decades now. Um, wow. But you know, there's three decades. There are po- you look younger yeah. than me. What's going on? Uh, no, I'm, I'm kicking 50s. Uh, door Dr. Bowen, no, you are not. <laughs> I am. I My birthday's on Monday. To the listener my who's only hearing this, you would not like, believe that. Uh, yeah, it's true. <laughs> wow, congratulations. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. Well, I guess. <laughs> I don't look my age. That's great. Um, yeah, no, I've been at this probably about, uh, gosh, 27 years, 28 years, something like that. And so, like, the, the continuum talks about people who... It acknowledges people who do soul sex work and soul square work, but my focus was on how people are blending the two, Mm. right? So we see that a lot, and it was also a focus on off-street workers as well. So Mm. I would say between 30 and 45% of off-street industry workers are doing other things on the side to make money. And that's like, you know, the dancer who's putting herself through school and doing other jobs like that. It's just part of it's just part of how it has to happen. Right. And these and these folks are they they've incorporated sex work to supplement income. But most of the folks came from full time square jobs. Mm. I think there was maybe one, maybe two people in the sample that came from full time sex work into living a dual life, but most of them came from the square world. Mm. So, and the ways that they were blending, they were either like um, blending sex work and square jobs to transition into a full-time square job or full-time sex work. So like a transition hustle, or they were uh, blending in order to achieve some goal, like some project, like they're getting on the property ladder, something off, doing something, right? So so they had an end date in mind. And then there were folks that were doing it and decided that, 
I choose not to ever be poor. So they decided that they're always going to have they're supplementing their income in sex industries or square work. They're going to decide how much of each they're doing, but they'll consistently blend that as a financial plan for their life. Hmm. And so that meant social mobility. That meant there's this one woman, um, her name's Joy, and she. Oh, I, I actually, five... I pulled a quote from Joy that I particularly ah. found fascinating. She said, okay, sure. I don't do sex work full time because I don't want to lose my identity of who I perceive myself to be. Yeah. And that's the thing, too, because I did talk to them about um, about identity and, you know, which job they identified with, where they're drawing their sense of who they are from. And for her, it was definitely her square job, because you have to consider that in this book, there are people who were their their education and their credentials are would point them into a career trajectory where, you know, she landed in the career that she actually trained for. Yeah but she wasn't able to get the kind of income that she needed in order to do the things she needed, like right. an example, paying for her child's tuition. Yeah. Um, Which I think is another stereotype that, that your book challenged. I think for some people, the, the percentage of people who actually were university educated and still mm. did enter into a duality work situation. It's, it's yeah. Yeah. And um, people who live dual lives, benefit it's a terrible stereotype that we have because we yeah. yeah the book definitely does open people's minds about who trade sets and yeah. why these folks are should be considered as part of the working class because they they used to always be um but the stereotypes about sex workers not necessarily being educated not necessarily being skilled that kind of thing like that is i don't know like some 1970s version of, of who mm. trade sets like that is not the modern day and but because of stereotypes like that people who live dual lives are able to conceal and able to hide in plain sight because you would never suspect that they are trading sex yeah and i obviously this resonated with me as someone who's played parts um but, I, but i've never led a, a dual life and it must be exhausting i mean it's akin to not that I'm saying morally these are the same things, but like bigamy or someone who has another family or something like that. It's a, it's a whole other existence where you are a whole different you and you have to be able to shift gears into one and then shift gears into the other and hope that the two worlds never collide in case one of them destroys the other or both. Absolutely. And I don't think I included in the book all the commentary about how some people were likening what they're doing to being a spy. Because it is, you construct a whole reality. And some people were pretty well versed at that because they come from homes and grew up in ways that they would have to hide their square, their home life from their school friends. Or, you know, there are people who are kind of pretty well versed in being what the world needs them to be in a certain situation mm -hmm. and then being something else. And um, But for others, it was like, it could be Jekyll and Hyde, right? And mm -hmm. what's interesting with some of the folks, because some of their square jobs, like if you're in health services as your square job and you're doing sexual massage as your sex industry job, there's a lot of integrated skills and knowledge transfer mm. and all that, that between the jobs, yeah. but you have to keep it separate because you lose your license to practice. You lose pretty much everything. Right. You don't want to forget you're at your square work while you're doing <laughs> While you're doing, et cetera. And there's like some instances where, you know, there was that overlap or that leakage but and and people risk would you'd risk everything like so you have to yeah. even though they one job may inform the other in ways that were beneficial for people 
they had to keep those things separate and any sort of accomplishments in, in certain jobs, they'd have to hide it and they yes. can't claim it all. And yeah, it is that. So when you talk about your being an actor and moving in and out of roles, like you, you know that intimately about you have to know things differently and be things differently and not give off or give away anything that would signal that your face doesn't match your words, right. you know. Absolutely. Yeah, so. And I've, I mean, I've, not to draw the analogy out, but I've seen actors who can't let it go mm. and it bleeds over into their non-acting work. And that's it's damaging to them as well. Um, yeah. And but it's exhausting, as you said, and it's exhausting. And you and there's something you said yeah. in the book that, that, that for these people being outed is their greatest fear. Yeah, Absolutely. they lose everything because, you know, and they also hide their sex work from square people and their square work from sex industry folks too, because, you know, sometimes like that's, it's having a degree isn't necessarily the best way to be mobile in sex industries like that. Those are kinds of things that they would need to suppress. But the way that we treat people who engage in sex industries is, it's appalling. It's hypocritical. It's, it's just, it's disgusting. Um, And we know why we know, we understand the fact that most people enter sex industries for money. Most people have limited choice. You know, we do have a very precarious labor market where we've made it so that, you know, you can't, well, you can barely find a full-time job. And when we shouldn't be punishing folks because that, I mean, they haven't created that the labor market situation, have they? Well, all of us have, but yes, as a group, but they're at the worst group, but exactly. And they're getting the stanky end of, of everything. Um, you know, and trying to piece people trying to piece together jobs and trying to make ends meet. And we, we have had a decade of austerity and more in the UK and they were like salary caps and, and we watch people get wealthy. Look how many billionaires were created during the cold, during the pandemic. More millionaires and billionaires. Billionaires. Yes. Incredible. Right. And then some people are just like, they're working their asses off. If you work a full-time job and you are like barely living above the poverty, like you get frustrated. And for these individuals, because they, they did most of them, like, you know, did took the trouble to go to school, go to university, get the credentials you're supposed to get. They believe the whole lie that there'll be a job for them at the other end of it. And what we've done is we've really casualized and fragmented the labor market so that we have people who would normally find full-time employment struggling to make ends meet. But we've created that because, you know, we we consume the goods of companies who don't pay their staff and, we, and they've externalized like all the labor costs and the benefits. Well, they've, and, like, they've made it too easy, haven't they? Amazon is too good a product. It's too easy to go click a thing on this they, device that's already, they, they've gamified the device to make you spend more yeah. time on it. And then you're yeah. in the program that they've gamified to hijack your reward system. And then you just click the one thing and it, it arrives and at it, your door. And it's like, it's too good a system. So human beings are not going to give that up. We're just not. And that means and that good jobs that means get paid. That- but like everything else and it's not just it's not just delivery jobs and those kinds of jobs it's jobs in academics it's jobs in health services it's jobs in education like it's it's all of these jobs become okay you've got a 10-month contract but there's 12 months in a flip in the air like and we're supposed to like make ends meet that way and so we're doing this to each other we want the benefits of our instant fast consumerism you know our society but we have to then but then why brutalize and humiliate and criminalize sex workers then because they're just hustling and they're just doing 
what, you know, they are, these folks are the mainstream workers that are delivering the coffee, that are doing all these things, um, but they're also doing this and it's legal work as well. So why are we, you know, stigmatizing them? That's the key question. That's kind of what I hoped you were going to be able to answer, because I think that is the main, it's like, okay, there are some places in the world where it has now been legalized in various forms, right? There are or decriminalized. Places, or decriminalized as well. So it just depends where you're at. But like, it doesn't seem like those places have completely fallen apart once this has happened. You know, much <laughs> yeah, or, much, everybody's not a sex worker yeah, in New exactly. Zealand or New South Wales. Like, yeah, much akin to the way Canada just legalized marijuana in a stroke, and it's oh. like, how's Canada doing? It's doing Canada. It's great. It's and you know what? Canada. All the pot smokers are still pot smokers, and all the people it, who aren't pot smokers are still not pot smokers. Exactly. And all of this fear that's being, you know, spewed around, you know, it is that fear mongering that, oh my God, if you do this, the floodgates will open and Everybody, you know, will do this. And, and, and it's like, no, the people who are doing it will be safer. They'll have choice. They'll have access to police protection. They'll have, you know, all kinds of flexibility. Uh, people who, ex like, exploit and harm them, they'll probably, they'll construct those folks out. Like, you don't need a gangster around yeah. you if you've yeah, exactly. got legitimate, you know, business. Yeah. State back protection yeah. by laws and rights. Yeah. And rights. And people who are already in those industries paying the taxes that we all use for all the, you know, they're already paying for the public services and they're paying for the tax, paying taxes and they're not benefiting from those services because so, we've decided to judge their work, even though it's legal work. It's hypocrisy. Do you think and it's, it's a holdover from, you know, like I said, the 19th century, the way they looked at things, this is, you know, and they call it sort of the oldest profession in the world. Let's use that cliche but like it's definitely feels to me like places where they've managed to destigmatize it you you ask me I, I always think decriminalization is the answer anyway but like it just seems like that is obviously the answer and the only reason it hasn't happened is some holdover some moral some taboo idea that we can't I would say it it's moral partially more like we haven't dealt with stigma fully even in the places where sex work is just decriminalized and we haven't dealt with um really extending those rights to uh, migrant workers and to uh, workers of color. So they're even in New, New Zealand and New South Wales. And, but there is like this morality issue that we have to deal with. It's, mm. it's straight up hypocrisy, um, but also, and I missed what I was gonna say, um, that, that people benefit from the way things are, right? Like right. nothing that's happening is an accident, right? So why I chose relationalism as the theoretical approach is so that we don't see structure as something other than people doing things repeatedly, right? So if we decided that, you know, the people who have the power to decide and to support sex workers in organizing their own industry aren't doing it, mm. I think that there is you know, we, we have to think about who benefits from disorganization in sex industries. So when you hear people wanting to criminalize buying and do all these things and make sex workers more dependent on third parties and hide and be on the dark web and all this stuff, they are making sex workers dependent on third parties. And there are folks who benefit from unemployment and desperation among sex workers. And who are those folks? The people who benefit monetarily would be the people who manage industries, the people who have shares in some of these huge sites, the people who have shares in some of these companies, webcam companies, etc. Um, there are 
I think business folks and really like corporate, not I wouldn't say corporate, but people who are business savvy are not necessarily only doing square businesses, mm. right? So we have to think, if we think about the sex industries mirror the square world, the people who are doing the best in the square world are the same kinds of folks who are doing the best in sex industries and in informal economies, because you can't run a business in an informal economy without being connected, without being having resources, without having a way to protect yourself and shield yourself. You know, like these are, these are big game players. And so I think that the folks who target sex workers who want to see them criminalized don't really understand that whole cause and effect because otherwise we would empower and support sex workers in claiming taking back control of their work and their working conditions their environment and making sure that sex workers have power in negotiating their work and we Mm. would never work to turn the sex industry into a buyer's market And then if it is those big business interests that are benefiting from it, then they also have the power to shape the narrative. Like, I don't know if well, you they, would in, they would be able to either influence policymakers yes, or, exactly. um, you know, spread the message like, to the public. Some power, yeah, some soft power. There's something yeah. going on there. And I, I, I like my life, so I'm not going to, you know, delve into <laughs> like organized crime and all that stuff. And that's a hustle too. Like, you yeah. know. So, you know, I just respect the hustle and stay in my lane about that stuff. But, you know, there are, we have to, we have to explore um, who benefits from the way things are and not just believe that it, it, it is the way it is because that's the way it is. It's like, we make it that way. Yeah. Um, and folks allow things to happen, turn a blind eye, maybe take some, you know, kickback money, whatever, like there's stuff going on. Um, and I also think that sex workers have a lot of power um, and they would have more. And that's scary for people. Yeah. If they could, if there was legal and a union, that's what it needs. That's, I mean, again, that's just my personal opinion. I just think that's what they are unionizing, right? There's a United Voices of the World. Sex workers are unionizing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And And in informal, in informal ways, which is better than nothing, of course. Formal and informal ways. Absolutely. Um, And because like we haven't criminalized selling sex or we haven't criminalized that we haven't criminalized purchasing sex from a voluntary adult person who's consenting you know we haven't we haven't done that in the uk which is it's a good thing and we're still at the point where we can support folks to organize their industries in ways that work for them that there's Mm -hmm. occupational health and safety guidelines and all those things um, ways that make it safe uh, for them to do so, because this idea that we're going to eliminate no, the demand for sex, the demand for consuming adult content is, is uh, that's not, I want a world that's kind of colorful and, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, that's cute and that celebrating the human. Say that. That's, there's just no way. I, I looked up when I was doing some of the research for this, I looked up because I'm a bit of a nerd with words. It was like, where does the word pornography come from? And it's mm. it's like from ancient Greek, like this this shit's been around. And it was for drawing naked women. That was the first mm. ever porn, you know, in a in a rudimentary way. It's yeah. like, listen, it's not going 
anything. All of the books, all of the porn, all of the entertainment. And what's really, like, really gets at me, because, you know, hypocrisy just, I don't know, I think that's yeah. why I wake up in the morning, because I get angry. Huh. But it's that every time you see a true crime drama or a series of cr- something about crime, it's always a sex worker being murdered. Being murdered. And yep. there's such consumerism around that, right? Like, we, yeah. is this thing where it's like a guilty pleasure, or I don't understand it, it's like, we, we, you know, the ways that we've marketed and benefited off Jack the Ripper and then Jack the Stripper and then like all this stuff, like we've, you know, we've, we've commercialized and benefited so much off of the misery and murder of sex workers. But yet when they come to us as mainstream folks asking for rights and recognition and options and protection, we yeah. don't provide it. And this is a, a question I had for you because I think in some people's minds, they'll think, well, this sex work is not a neutral act. Uh, do you understand what I mean? I mean like, what does that mean? Sky, I'm, trying, I'm trying to sort of articulate this thought. It's like, I think a lot of people would not view it as a neutral act, as in it's charged, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's intimate. And I think some people, yeah, some people might view it as it's a selling of a service. So it's, no different from selling any other service. But I think there's a sizable percentage of people who think, well, I, I couldn't do it. Um, although they'd probably surprise themselves if the wolf came to the door and realized they, <laughs> they could. were starving. How long can you listen to Absolutely. a crying baby? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. But I do think there's people who think that way. Um, and maybe and I was trying to wonder hmm. about why. And that's where I thought maybe it's because well, it's because not it's a neutral in, act. But neutral is in I'm, th- in I'm thinking effect. that when you're the effect they yeah, have like on I'm, the sex worker, on their psyche. Right. Okay. So I'm, so you're, okay. So we're talking then, we're narrowing this sex industry to contact sex work. Yes. Where yeah, absolutely. Like, okay. Yeah. So it's, a, it's Sorry. an absolute Sorry. Okay, just been clear. Yeah, yeah, sure. So there is that, that there are folks in the industry that provide full services, for example. So they provide full sexual services, full contact, all of that. So those are the people who I think most people think about when they're talking about the industry, but that's not the industry. But just the majority because of the internet, which which is what I wanted to come on to next, because the internet is such a fascinating topic. But but yeah, yeah, just for the in-person point. Because people, some people want to see sex as sacred, religious, within marriage or something, assuming that marriage is some sacred, safe institution that that women aren't brutalized and men and other people aren't brutalized within. Um, So I think that it is that, that it's, it's horse stigma because what Gail Peterson talked about when she talked about horse stigma is it's that selling your honor for base goods or for bait, a base, like for money. Right. So Mm. people who see sex as, something that's virtuous if you're someone that then sells sexual services they would see you as selling sex for base gain which is immoral Mm. so people who apply moralistic lenses they did the same to homosexuality right like it's it's the same kind of thing right or 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 interracial marriage like same kind of thing like so they're applying this moral authority to something that the individuals who are involved in um selling and purchasing may not see it that way like they yeah. but and adults have the right to 
to define their own work and their own circumstances. And sex workers are really good at making the distinction between what's work and what's not, what's intimate for them and what's not. So that's why sex workers negotiate those things right. and advertise what's what they are, what's available and what isn't. So if someone doesn't want to do um, doesn't want to kiss or doesn't want to do the girlfriend experience or the boyfriend experience. They say that in there, they communicate that and they negotiate those terms between them and the parties that they're interacting with. So, mm. yeah, I can see that there are people who, um, particularly because if, if the seller of sex isn't controlling the transaction and we have set it up so that that's usually the case for most workers who happen to be, um, survival workers are, you know, in desperate need of money, the cl- the buyer has more control, right? And so right. instead, so that's why we need to lift people out of poverty so yes. that nobody's involved in survival work, so that the transactions that they negotiate are on even footing or the sex worker, the expert usually has more power in the situation in most situations when we're buying and selling things. Right. So we have to make sure that we're eliminating the conditions that lead to to survival sex, which includes poverty. So that if you had, let's say, a guaranteed livable income, you wouldn't be necessarily selling sex for drugs or for to make your rent because you you would be living above the poverty line and you wouldn't have those needs and you could be more selective about who you see and what you did and when you worked and whatever. And you have a lot of choice and you can say no to a client because the definition of survival sex that I've worked under for the last 20 odd years has been that the, the inability or the lack of opportunity to, to um, turn down, to say no to work, to mm. turn down the next client. So if we make it so people involved in industries have the opportunity to turn down the next client, then they're never desperate for that and then money in order to from, a, from an unequal position and exactly. potentially make desperate and bad decisions for their own well-being. Yeah. And then maybe does that like answer that question about um what you were talking about about yeah. feeling that there's neutral i think the way the then way the transactions aren't neutral no com- com- like commercial capitalism isn't neutral but see this is the way that i came to think about it. so tell me if you think i'm completely off with this i'm like okay m- m- like i said decriminalize it and regulate it and unionize that is my default position but i was thinking uh, of the psyche of the person being affected because i don't think sex is neutral i think it has positives and negatives in different situations and different scenarios but it's rarely neutral i think probably some people can switch off and make it neutral i think for most of us it probably has some pulls that are positive and some that are negative but then i just thought yeah but like (laughs) imagine if i worked in a mortuary like what would be some of the side effects on my psyche i would i would definitely think about death a lot more um you'd have a stigmatized job because it's a tainted job yep exactly and i'm being a grave digger and those are just the things that come with this area. And so I was thinking that's just, that might come with with that area. It certainly would, I think, for me. And the neutrality, I mean, yeah, like it is that, it's that affecting, lots of jobs affect our psyche. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you worked in a job you hated, cleaning public toilets in a fast food restaurant, some, a job that I've actually done in my life, um, there's probably every other job that I would rather do. (laughs) And also the way that like, you know, 
the public treated you in that situation, the garbage people would leave, the things people would say. Like, so these folks who live this dual life work in these sometimes crappy jobs in square work. Yeah. And then have experiences of working in sex industries where they're more entrepreneurial. These are off street workers. So they're more entrepreneurial and they find more liberation and freedom and Mm -hmm. control over their work in and more, I guess, neutrality, if you want neutrality, um, in square industries, right? Mm-hmm. And vice versa, there are some people who, those of us who work in, in the square world will find it more fulfilling than doing sex work. Like we all, we all have come from it from a different place and interpret things differently. And, you know, this, the psyche and the emotional well-being of folks who are forced to do any work that you don't like, mm-hmm. I think that we need, or don't want to do, I think that we need to that's why I think we need to eliminate forced labor, but yeah. we have a capitalist society that depends upon your desperate need for work so that I can force you to do crappy labor and underpay you and undervalue you because that's the form of capitalism that we have chosen and that we choose to practice and repeat mm. and rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat. So yeah, like crappy jobs affect all of our psyches, right? Yeah, they they really do. And, you know, um, we just definitely don't want anyone to be forced into sex industries in particular um, because of uh, poverty, because they yeah. will compromise themselves and people will take advantage of them. Yeah. And, and that's what that's, we want to end. That's what we want to end. Yeah. And that's yeah. what your charity is about, isn't it? Numb. Yeah, National Ugly Month is definitely, it's it's about that. It's about, um, first of all, providing victim support to sex workers and people who are harmed in the adult industries, making sure that they are validated and heard and get the quality victim support. Yeah. Then we process those reports of harm into alerts so that we send warnings to sex working communities to avoid this person or this condition or whatever. Mm. And we facilitate uh, people who choose to, to engage in police and courts to mm. seek justice, um, but we definitely support people to to healing and recovery, and also developing resilience. So we have a number of programs that we're doing now, working on now to make sure that um, that se- like harm to sex worker doesn't go invisibilized, mm. and that we make sure that the policies and the, our public services and our police services respond and really support and prevent violence against sex workers and we do that the media has to play has a role to play as well because you know the language the derogatory terms prostituted prostitute whore hooker all of these things that are you know the language we dehumanize sex workers such that those bastards that are sick enough to target people for harm will choose people who they perceive that we don't give a shit about Right. And a lot of times that's why sex workers are targeted for harm. And we have cases and we see cases the world over where sex workers are victimized by an individual and then nothing's done about it. Cases get thrown out, NFA, all this stuff. And then they go on to harm other folks, murder and rape other folks. And then usually if they get caught, um, they get caught because they've harmed someone who's not, not a sex worker. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so, we're, we're so, talking on the day that, that Bill Cosby was just released from jail. Yeah, yesterday, it's, right? Yep. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to, especially against someone so powerful, but even even that, it's, it's hard to, the public 
have been manipulated so that their sympathies lie elsewhere because we've stigmatized these people but you so you've been in the industry for did you say 27 years do you think the broad changes over time are swinging towards uh, a less stigma more positive legislation for the for the workers or are you pessimistic about it yeah I, I there's glimmers of hope but then there's a lot of setbacks like I think that um compared to how things were in the 90s like sex workers are who, those who can be are out they're organizing they're unionizing they're claiming their space but they do that at, at incredible expense to themselves mm. and their movements but they're absolutely advocating for their rights and i will always be here to support and however i can to amplify those voices i think some progressive politicians get the idea that increasing cr criminalizing increasing police involvement in people's lives is not a way to address survival sex or sex work because we're not dealing with some of the social issues we're not dealing with poverty and homelessness and you know mental health and and trauma and and uh, you know victimized like we're not dealing with the, un the mm. some of the reasons that motivate involvement in sex industries and in other forms of survival um crime mm. and survival work or whatever but sex work's not illegal but informal work and and survival crime we're we're not dealing with um yeah we're just not dealing with with human beings holistically with you know quality of work quality of life uh food security housing security family breakdown um you know childhood exploitation child abuse like so we have a lot of folks who are wounded and hurt and medicating and coping and just trying to drag their asses to work every day and we have a really sick society and a sick community in a lot of ways but mm. that is the type of society that our brand of capitalism needs mm. yeah. so i think that we you know there needs to be a sea change i think that there is some progressive work going on decriminalization in new zealand decriminalization in new south in uh, new south wales uh, decriminalization in victoria potentially um and there 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 are some forward movements around recognizing harm reduction mm. and recognizing some of the if we don't deal with some of the underlying social inequities and and economic uh insecurity that you know criminalizing is what's that going to do that's just gonna well the sex industry is going to continue no matter what policies are in place because think about places where there's full criminalization the us right aside from some bunny ranches etc yeah. full criminalization you think sex sex industry work ended no like Please. like porn ended web cram ended no, no it's, there's just in my doing research for this book I, I looked up where where is porn the most uh downloaded <laughs> and consumed in the world and it's in Saudi Arabia where uh, there's so much repression repression of, of of basic bodily rights especially for women and it's like well of course then then you know that the desire doesn't go somewhere it's just, no, it gets channeled somewhere else yeah, um, and then people need an outlet. Like that's yeah. the thing. It, it it will pop up. Life finds a way. You know, yeah. life, sex work <laughs> will find. Uh, am I quoting like what Jurassic, Jurassic Park? Park. But, I oh love God. It. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it is true. It, it's like either we decide that sex is part of society, part of yeah. human. You know, it's part of who we are. Well, there wouldn't and be so, human beings without it. <laughs> well, there you go. And like consuming adult content for consenting adults should be okay yeah you watching porn me watching porn anyone who wants to do you know 
you want to order a massage from someone who's like who who's paid well who you know yeah. like you you, uh, you might Put want to job. do that like yeah yeah and and yep. some people want the freedom and liberty to do that so in, unless we're going to be full on repressive society then we'll make everything illegal you know everything from strippers everything right shut and everything then, up which i don't think that's where we're going but it almost yeah. seems like what's the end game for folks who want to criminalize um adult industries like what what i don't know what their utopia is but they haven't <laughs> dealt with poverty and they haven't dealt with just the fact that people have the right to freely express themselves the way they bloody want to in terms of you know sexuality and and yeah. that's just part of who we are as, as as animals and that's something that we're seeing a lot of in the modern digital age like uh, sex work has obviously been fundamentally changed by the internet in in so many ways um john ronson has this really interesting audio series about sort of how Pornhub became this behemoth um, and sort of sucked up all of the all of the money from the industry and in like one change. And that's like on a on a big systemic scale, quite an interesting story, but also down to the individual sole trader. There are so many places where you can use an Internet as a middleman. And in, in that way, like you said, become an entrepreneur, become a, almost a brand. Become, oh, yeah. Uh, There's a, a lot business. of people who absolutely and there, there's a lot of people before. before and so yeah the sex the internet has facilitated and facilitated some industry work but then some industry work is just completely based on internet if we didn't have internet we wouldn't have these certain industries that are emerging so yeah like it, it, you know adult content creators they can they produce all kinds of things they sell it they sell the reruns they sell whatever the money shots or whatever and they like they so they're if they're they're able to have their own websites and do their thing and so like there's there's quite a broad spectrum of sex industry mm. so that's the issue with um you know if people are, are looking at really narrow populations or narrow bands but and trying to enact policy that would affect larger populations within like you they i don't think that the, that they see the full scope of the sex industry and how the internet facilitates this non-contact sex work and mm. porn and interaction and webcam a friend of mine wrote a book actually um that i'm halfway through and it's called camming money mm. power and pleasure in the sex industry her name's angela jones um and so she does a complete expose of you know webcamming you know the good the bad and the ugly mm. and that's definitely a form of industry work that wasn't available but you know before mm. that what did we have we had the phone sex we had, and then yeah. there's a couple of comedies that had like some guy pretending he's a woman and talking on hi baby or whatever like you know we yeah. had ways of doing these things so um been around Oh, I remember gosh. when I was a kid, there was this thing. I don't think they really do it so much anymore, but it was like a British seaside tradition. They'd have like naughty postcards. And when you're oh, sort of like cards. 10 and it's kind of like at the beach with like ice cream cones covering kind of thing. And you're, you know, you've got a 10 year old brain and you're like, what is this? Oops. <laughs> uh, there's always been some, some way for it to, but it seems like, and I wonder what your opinion on this, because when the pandemic hit, we suddenly saw quite a lot of, uh people with higher profile let's say joining sites like OnlyFans which mm -hmm. is part of you know people making millions who are bona fide celebrities and that's 
it's private access. It's not necessarily sexual, but it's obviously also very related to sex work. So you don't have to put sexual photos on there, but a lot of people use it for that point. And some of the celebrities who signed up have done that. And do you think that in terms of the broader culture and, and the way that we look at these things, do you think that will systematically or in any way alter people's opinions? Or do you think it's just a flash in the pan? It's just a moment. Well, uh, it's one of those things, right? The more mainstream something gets, the more accessible it do, or more acceptable it becomes. It yeah. is that politics of respectability that happens. Yeah. Do you remember when um, pole dancing, all the soccer moms and the, <laughs> the I don't know, all the moms are all started to do pole yeah. dancing as exercise, right? So yeah, you know, do. it is there is that. I think that the there's there are elements burlesque, for example, like there are elements of adult industries that have been mainstreamed and will always be mainstreamed and I think that you know um I think that 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 will always happen but then within this hierarchy again um mm. there will be those things that are going to be seen as more tainted more dirty more unacceptable um so I don't know if there's going to be we're going to put our arms around the full sex I... industry ever like that might um, but be you see yeah. forms of BDSM, you know, you see that kind of thing when you get these mainstream, what was it? 51, 50 shades of 50, something, yeah, 50 shades, shades of gray, gray, you know, so there is some of that mainstreaming, but I, 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 I think that'll continue, but definitely I don't think we're going to embrace the industry in its entirety. We're going to be mainstream folks going to be quite selective and they're going to whitewash and sanitize whatever it is they co-opt from yeah. the industry, just like the pole dancing. Um, because I think the best pole dancing instructors will be actual strippers. Right? <laughs> but instead you've got this really, you got a girl in the leggings and she's like, whatever, um, to yeah. each his own. But it's just, it's, it's like when anything else is co-opted, right? Like you get this bastardized version. And then sometimes it even erases its ties to adult industries, right? Like, right. so it becomes this exercise, jazzercise, whatever, but it doesn't say, well, actually strippers are making money with this move in particular <laughs> or whatever. And maybe people want to be titillated by that or want to be a, in, engage in that in a way that's safe and, cont and contained so that mm. their um, worth and value isn't tainted by engaging it because mm. of engaging in it. Like, so. I think, yeah, people will put boxes around things and make them quite consumable and quite sanitized. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, even if there's sort of legislation the next day which changes the reality, people's attitudes don't just suddenly change with the stroke of a pen, do they? That's No, and, and that's why stigma persists. Yeah. But I, but I think I sense that you're saying you think that culture is broadly moving towards, you don't know how long this arc might be, but broadly moving towards less stigma, more acceptance, more power to the worker. It's a long, yeah, we, a long, it's a long, long haul. It's, uh, it's a long journey. Yeah. I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime, but, um, but we see that with um, just in certain, there's always going to be some holdouts, right? But we see like with most you know, millennials and most folks like we're, we're understanding gender diversity, we're understanding like acceptance of race and culture. We're like, you know, I think what like young girls are growing up wanting to be an influencer, like, right, you right, know, right. Our, our societies are, are moving along. So there will be um, really conservative um, 
pockets. Hold up. Um, and yeah, and most of those folks are usually the ones that are policymakers or politicians, <laughs> etc. But we, um, as the as the generations move on and we start to elect representatives that truly reflect our values and mm -hmm. et cetera, um, I think that there'll be some small incremental changes. But what I want to see is some more immediate changes to legislation and to um, responses to how sex workers are victimized that we can do immediately. We don't need a whole generation to change um, mm. because, you know, people's lives are at stake if we're not sending those messages that sex workers are part of our communities, that they are just like us, that if you hurt them, you hurt us, come one, come all, you know, and we're going to protect them and we're going to make sure that, you know, the people who think that they can target them with impunity um, get, uh, get the full force the full of the force law force. and and social protection as well like they get the full force of social censure as well because if we're not gonna if we're gonna say that we're a society that you know stands against you know victimization and stands against um abuse we have to do that for everyone whether we think that they're ideal victims or not whether we think that mm. they have clean hands or not that ideal everyone very interesting term yeah absolutely. yeah because sex workers don't need that i probably i probably don't need that i'm a black woman i i don't have access to like uh discourses of white female fragility for example right, i have right. to negotiate my innocence i have to outside of my workplace i'm the ceo so i have a lot of power within my workplace right. i have a phd right. so i have a lot of power and influence in academics but just walking right. down the street my life is different. Like I, my CV is not stable to my forehead. You know? <laughs> the pit. So it's like, and even if it was, maybe they'll beat me more. Who knows? But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it is, it is that thing. Like um, we just, we, I think we're moving towards making a safer, better world for everyone. Yeah. And I think that so there's a lot of us who are interested in that. Um, and, and don't, and also want to end trafficking and end, you know, rape mm. and abuse and all these other things, but we have to, we're, we're smart enough to recognize and to have respect for how people define and understand their own situation. So that whole call in the book around including sex workers, hearing from sex workers, like it, we have to respect how other adults define their work and lives the same way I would respect how you define and you know conceptualize your work and you would respect how I do it. If we're seen as adults on equal footing, and we respect each other, then we would make sure that we're working in each other's interests. But if you see a population as beneath you, as criminal, as whatever, their lives don't matter, then we oppress them. And, you know, there's no reason to do that for people in sex industries. No, and we need to stop doing that. That's that's just, it's just a, one, of, one of humankind's sort of least attractive aspects, and we need to all be aware of it and keep working on it. Um, and I mean... You've been very generous with your time, Dr. Bowen. What, what, can, what can people do other than buy your book, Work, Money and Duality, Trading Sex as a Side Hustle? Um, what, what, how, how can people help? Sure. And I think um, doing what you've done, like even in preparation for the interview, you've read, you've you know, picked up on some new terminology, you've applied it to how you understand the world. Like I think the more educated we become with um, how the rights of other populations that we live alongside are being affected. I think that's that's better and that's that will make us stronger. Um, also keep an eye out for when sex workers are calling out for support, when they're seeing that they're being violated, when they want changes in law, 
when you know they want reviews of certain pieces of the legislation read about it get educated and mm-hmm. then then join join the chorus right mm-hmm. um obviously i have to plug my my charity that yep. there's a lot of our charities that are working to support um, victims and to you know create options and and improve uh, the lives of people who we serve so donate to charities that are that are doing working in this area Absolutely. but it is that and then interpersonally it's when you see the sex worker when you hear a sex worker a joke um you just don't participate you just call that out same way we would call out race jokes or gay jokes or whatever it's like call out those jokes that you know that we stop that violence that happens in interaction with each other um i think that that's that's an casual dismissal that is uh kept hidden by those you know jokes that actually have some sort of um malicious intent underneath yeah absolutely just before you go because i know you have a a thing for um where does the name for the the charity come from Wait, oh, what, National Ugly story? Mugs. What's well, the story? Because it's nationaluglymugs.org. That's where people should go to learn more. Um, what's the what's the story behind the name? Yeah, the name just Ugly Mugs is is like a mug is somebody who's you know unsavory, etc. Yeah. And so sex workers in Australia had this had ugly mugs lists like of like bad clients or oh, dangerous dangerous people. Stay away um, from. Stay away from. You know, he's yeah. a he's an effing mug, like stay away from him, whatever. Yeah. And then that's also part of British culture as well. Um, yeah, and so they were, uh, yeah, they, <laughs> and, so they were like these, uh, these like dodgy puncher schemes and ugly mug schemes that were all over the country peppered throughout. And so national ugly mugs came to uh, centralize a lot of those because they weren't talking to each other in ways that they should have been. So someone who victimized uh, sex worker. In, yeah, and um, that way the, the ugly mugs warnings get out to more broadly but yeah it is that thing that is sort of just a dodgy punter uh kind of idea tongue-in-cheek uh i I wanted the names changed to be honest but but there's such history and some people like the name some people don't but it is one of those talking points right um yeah yeah, ugly mug is someone who who victimizes uh listen i think as much as i could sympathize with why you might want the name change like from from like a, I don't know a branding point of view or, or just like do we really want to call do we want people to, <laughs> it, in a way it has history in a way it's the perfect name because actually at the crux of I think of a lot of what we've been talking about is that we want to get rid of these people who view sex workers as a disposable as these bad punters these ugly mugs they are a problem these they need to be known they need to be criminalized they need to be stopped and survival sex has to end and those two things are feeding each other so more information sharing can only be a good thing especially when it's uh protecting people who are who are often vulnerable um anyway listen to me anyway i don't know no, what that's opinion. really good no you're, you're the scientist just... i know but you know all of us can become experts in these kinds of things and it's really important i think that uh you know going forward some of the things that snagged in the book for you and that popped in the book for you will come up again when we're talking about labor market and, and all kinds of things that you'll you know you'll see that it, it is all integrated we are all one uh, <laughs> <laughs> but i really uh really uh appreciate you having me on and yeah looking forward to to seeing what your audience might think of what might think of the book absolutely well raymond um if i may uh, it's been a, a pleasure to to get to know you and yeah have a have a blessed canada day Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed it, please give us five stars and consider becoming a subscriber and maybe even supporting us on Patreon. Really, really, really helps me continue making this show. Many, many thanks to Nils Hennis-Steer for the amazing music and to Dave Fox for the cool artwork. Please keep coming back every week for more Bliss of the Abyss.